0: Well, return with me, and we are back in the book of Exodus. And we are at a sobering chapter indeed. Uh, This is really the appearance of God to His people, and it is by no mistake to be a terrifying scene. I was commenting to a brother earlier, this is not a seeker-sensitive sermon. Uh, This is not an ushy-gushy Jesus. This is a picture of the true Jesus, and honestly, that should terrify you. And yet, God doesn't often do that uh, in our own sense of things. And that's because, as the saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. Become so acquainted with something, you've lost sense of how different, special, sometimes dangerous it is. And if familiarity doesn't breed contempt, I think it often breeds apathy. You become so familiar with something, you take it for granted. You lose sight of its dangers. You know, perhaps it's that power tool. And if you're like me, which many of you probably are not, and that's a good thing, but you're an instruction reader. Like, you get out the new chop saw, and I'm reading all of the directions about how I'm not going to cut my limbs off. So I don't do that. I don't really want to. Uh, But then you use the saw a lot, and you start to take it for granted, and you lose sight of how dangerous this thing can really be, that it really can take a digit off if you're not too careful and more. We become very familiar, and we become lackadaisical with it. Or think about automobiles, cars. Uh, I trust many of you arrived here in a car and didn't think much about it. We use them every day. And in that way, too, we take for granted the kind of power, even in an automobile, that we are harnessing, uh, and that's evidenced by uh, we'll be careening 70 miles an hour down a concrete speedway, and then we'll just let go of the wheel to go get something off the floor. Or we will start going too fast, or we'll begin to stare at our phones, because we forget honestly what we're doing, that we're traveling 70 miles an hour down a concrete speedway. And what happens then? Sometimes crash happens. And if that hasn't happened to you, you've probably seen it on the side of the road. A whole lot of damage can be done when you are, again, hurling down a speedway at 70 miles an hour and then brought to an immediate stop. It's dangerous. And that makes sense, why the instructions to new drivers, we just go over and over again that this is a responsibility and it's very dangerous. You're driving a a vehicle that could kill someone. We're trying to wake young people up to, one, the reality they're not immortal, and then two, to wake them up up from the sense of this safe familiarity. They've been driving in cars their whole lives, but this is not a video game. When you crash, you don't respawn. You don't get to do it over and try again. Someone gets hurt or worse. We become so familiar with great power and how dangerous it can be to be, have that familiarity and not understand what's at stake. That's a very dangerous posture to take, this one of familiarity. But, of course, the greatest power that we take for granted is that we ignore the dangers evident in our relationship with God and who this God is. And this text from Exodus really is a wake-up call. A wake-up call to say, maybe you do not know God like you think you do. Especially if you cannot picture a God that you pray to that's like this from Exodus. And that's dangerous if that's not the case. Truly, what I'm getting at is we don't need to grow in our apathetic familiarity with God as much as we need to grow in our fear of this God. So, this word this morning is we need to move from dangerous, apathetic familiarity with God, a casualness with Him, to where this text lands, and that's a posture of prostrate, humbled, godly fear. And the text provides really four moves from that dangerous familiarity to godly fear. And the first move is this. It's to not forget, don't forget your mediator. Verses 7 and 9 of Exodus 19. If you're going to come to God, don't forget to bring your mediator, because it is a terrifying thing to stand before this God without one. That is, we... Nor Israel can have a relationship with this God all on our own. That is by ourselves. We need what we might call a go-between, a mediator, someone to stand in the gap between us and God. Because otherwise, this thing—a relationship with God—it's never going to work. Now you recall where we were a couple weeks ago. Uh, We looked at those opening six verses of the book of Exodus 19, this chapter, and what we saw is that. It's the culmination, really, of what the whole Exodus was about. God had delivered His people out of Egypt. He had destroyed Egypt's enemies, the Egyptians, and He brought Israel to Himself. God saved Israel to then start this special, think then, exclusive relationship with Him. Such that, He mentions in verse 5 of chapter 19, He says, "'Now, Israel, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant,' You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. God's saying, I own everything. All the people are mine, but you are mine. I redeemed you. I made you mine. You're the apple of my eye. And for a purpose, for a mission, we talked about this. He goes on in verse 6, so you would be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is, you're going to represent me to the world. You're going to bring the message of God to the world as you are my chosen people. I saved you for this. Sounds great. However, you understand as God is bringing Israel to himself, he's bringing them into relationship with him. And to relate means there is, in a sense, a back and forth, isn't there? There is a sharing. There is what we call a communion. There is a fellowship here. And the back and forth, as God comes down to us, is this word of obedience. As you go back and look at verse 5, there's this if statement about them being a treasured possession, right? See the beginning there, verse 5? If you carefully obey my voice and keep my covenant. This kind of dramatic rescue that God did for His people, it demands a response, This kind of salvation he gives demands that you be changed, namely that you be obedient. This kind of salvation comes with a responsibility. But conditions and all, the if, Moses takes that message down to the people in verse 7. They hear the terms, and in verse 8, we find their response. So look at Exodus 9, verse 19, verse 8 all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. It's basically like, sure, that sounds great. We get to be your people. We'll obey you. No problem. Okay, pause, right? Time out. Uh, We know where the story of Israel goes. They don't do so good at obeying such that they actually get driven out of the promised land. And the promises of God seem thrown aside. They're disciplined and judged for their failings. In other words, they don't keep the if side of this bargain. And and we know this is coming, and so we might chide them for being so arrogant. (laughs) Don't you know you can't obey all of this? But to take you back to the context, what is Israel supposed to say? You know, God just... I mean, think about what he did, graciously, miraculously, delivered them out of hundreds of years of slavery, has been feeding them in the wilderness day by day by providing bread from heaven, so to speak. And what are they supposed to say to that? Oh, God, I really appreciate it, but no thanks. I don't want to be your people. Hardly. No, the right response is, yes, we will be your people. And that's confirmed, actually, as Moses retells this story again in the second law that's called Deuteronomy. And that's in Deuteronomy chapter 5. We hear this. This is Deuteronomy 5, verse 28. And the Lord said to me, Moses, here's what God said, I have heard the words of this people that they have spoken to you, and they are right. This is good in all that they have spoken. This is the right response. When God graciously saves you like this, yeah, you're supposed to go, Absolutely, whatever you say, God, I'm yours. You bought me. Allegiance, love, obedience. That's the right response to a salvation like this. And so with that said, Moses then goes back up the mountain and gives those words back to God. The people said they want to obey. Let's do this relationship thing. However, what the Lord immediately tells Moses to go back down and tell the people gives us a clue that perhaps the people of Israel don't quite know what they're getting into. So look at verse 9 of Exodus 19. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud, Moses, that the people may hear when I speak with you, the idea is Moses, and may also believe you, that's Moses, forever. So I'm going to come down, and I'm going to speak with you, Moses, but I'm going to make sure all the people of Israel see how I speak to you. And that's going to convince them they need to trust you, that they always need to look to you. Because here's the thing. When you've been brought into a relationship with God, you know, the, this vaulted status. You are the chosen people of God. You are His prized possession. When you hear that said about you, it's easy to start thinking, I can relate to God basically how I want. I know He still loves me. That we can come to God on our own terms. That, do I really need Moses to be this intercessor anymore? I think I can handle this me and God thing on my own. I mean, we're all priests. That's what He said. We're a kingdom of priests. What do I need Moses for? Well, before we get too far down that road, Again, the Lord promises to speak again to Moses, but this time in front of all the people that they're going to see, that they're going to see in such a way, the way he does it, that this relationship with God thing is not an easy thing. It's not a casual thing. It's not a nonchalant thing. It's not a, you know, mi casa, su casa, drop in when you want thing. It actually can be a very dangerous thing. You know, to imagine, let's say I bank at Village Bank here in town, and it's my bank. They have my money, so I'm going to go get my money. And to go get my money, I walk into the bank, and I walk past the tellers behind the desk, and then I look for the vault, and it was partially open, and I go into the vault and I start grabbing money out of it, and then walk out with handfuls of money. Do you know what happens next? I go to jail. (laughs) Don't try this tomorrow, by the way. But it's my bank. It has my money in it. No, it's not. You have no right to go back there When I get money at the bank, how does it usually work? I'm talking to a person behind bulletproof glass and a little weird circular metal speaker, and I can hardly hear them, and they are the one that has to go back and get my dough and bring it to me. The point is, I have no right to get back there. Everything about that experience tells you, no, this really isn't your money. Well, how God shows Himself to Israel is a clue that He has awesome. That he is holy. And for you to get close is very dangerous, far worse than being arrested. That is, you need a go between. You need a mediator. You're gonna see this here. You want a mediator, you don't wanna go alone. And we know this because the way God reveals himself right before he gives the Ten Commandments, it works. They see they need a mediator. Flip over with me just one page here in Exodus chapter 20. So you see the chapter 19 he reveals himself in this terrifying glory. Then the beginning of chapter 20, he gives the Ten Commandments. And what's the people's response as they hear this? Well, it's verse 18 of Exodus 20. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood afar off and they said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen. I can listen loud and clear through that weird metal speaker, right? Like at the bank teller. That's great. But don't let God speak to us because if he does, we're all going to die. God speaks to them in such a way that they're going to keep trusting Moses to give them the Word of God, that they don't even want to hear directly from God because they understand that's too risky. It's too risky to try this on their own. And we need to understand that God didn't change once we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament. This is the same God. That we worship this morning. And that means we do not dare draw near to this God and His holiness without a mediator. And we know the answer without the ultimate mediator, the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. We know that. That's what we celebrate as we gather as the church. And yet we so easily forget this. this. This flies out of our thinking, doesn't it? Because we become too familiar with God. What does it look like? We try and move on from the gospel. We take the sacrifice of Christ for granted. We become so familiar with that gospel message that childhood like faith that we stop being amazed by it. And it's not because we think too often or much about the gospel, but because we think and have a far too low esteem of it. We start to live the Christian faith, at least practically speaking, assuming the gospel, neglecting the gospel, forgetting our need of it, and that means forgetting our need of a mediator every moment. In a way, this chapter then is a wake-up call. Don't take His goodness and His holiness for granted. Don't presume you are ever worthy of it, even though it comes as a gift. Don't presume you have earned a right to appear before Him. You could only have it if you come one way, and that's by one mediator, the risen Jesus Christ. As we hear in 1 Timothy 2, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all. Never lose sight of your mediator and your need for Him. Next, we move from dangerous familiarity to godly fear, because we understand you cannot come close to God and bring your sin, verses 10 to 15. Because here's the trouble. God is holy, and you're not. And His holiness is so pure, it cannot endure for a moment the presence of sin. And this gets pictured to us now as the Lord sets up requirements, really what are safeguards for the people as they prepare to meet God. These safeguards to keep intact the people so they don't get consumed and also to keep intact His holiness. And we see that now as we look to verse 10 of chapter 19. The Lord said to Moses, "'Go to the people, consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments.'" and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So you got to get them ready. I'm going to come meet them. And that means things cannot be normal. It cannot be how you've always understood things. Things have to change because God is coming. This is a special day. It needs to be distinct based on who's coming to meet you. So, for example, if you come over to my house unannounced, and I wasn't expecting to meet you, it's going to look a little bit different than when you come at seven when I invited you to come. And that's the thing. Arrive like two hours early before a meal at someone's house and see what's going on in their place. What's going on in my house? We are frantically running around. And what will happen is we'll go, hey, you're early. Here, get the broom. It's your turn. I mean, we know this. Your grandma's coming over. What do you do? You clean up. You get things ready. You spruce up the place. You're like, kids, go take a bath. Comb your hair. You pick up the toys. Because you want to honor your mom, the grandma. You want to receive them in your home in a way that shows you care. I knew you were coming, and I cared. (laughs) Well, when God comes into your life, He's saying it's kind of like that. Now, to be clear, I don't mean that means, oh, well, we need to wear our Sunday best and have a spotless church or house. That's not the point. Because we know God's after the heart anyways. But to that, is your heart as you come ready? Is it clean? And what ready looks like, are you ready to receive His Word even as it confronts you? Are you ready this morning as you came in to be changed by His Word? Are you ready to meet God? Because that's what He has to do. He has to change you. Well, here's what Israel had to do to get ready for this special occasion. What did it look like specifically? We find it in verses 14 and 15. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people, and he consecrated, prepared the people. And what did that look like? They washed their garments. And he also said to the people, verse 15, "...be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman." So, they were even not only to, to take a bath or to wash all their clothes, to, to show th- just removing any external pollutants, but they were to refrain from marital relations. Now, why is that? Is that because sex is some kind of dirty thing? No, not at all. Actually, we read in Hebrews that it is a, it is a great thing. It's undefiled, is the marriage bed, it reads. Well, then, why were they to abstain for a few days if it's not sinful here? I think the parallel in 1 Corinthians 7 really helps us. There the Apostle Paul urges the couples to not deprive one another, that is their conjugal rights, unless it is for a short time and not just for any old reason either. We read this. This is 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5. He says, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, why? That you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That is, if you're married and you're going to refrain from regular conjugal rites, let it be for the purpose of heightening a spiritual focus of no distractions. Much of the way you might abstain from food for a time to devote yourself to prayer, that's what this is about. He's saying, Israel, you cannot be distracted. we got to be focused. we got to be ready for this day. God is coming. Now, there's one more thing He tells them to do to get ready, and we skipped over it. Let's look at it now. It's in verses 12 and 13. He says, And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Here's the point. They're going to meet God, but they can only get so close. You, Moses, you've got to go down there, and it's like you've got to put safety cones all around the base of the mountain. And then you're going to take some rope and rope it off so they know, do not enter Holy business, no one crosses this line. And we're struck by the consequence for, you know, just stepping over that line. It's not a fine. It's not a warning. It's not, oh, we'll go to traffic school and you'll be okay. It's death. And the Hebrew actually here is emphatic. It's so emphatic, actually. It gives us a clue to to why death was a consequence for just a single foot trespass. Because you notice, our text reads at the end of verse 12, whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Or you could translate that, whoever touches the mountain shall surely die. Now think back to the opening chapters of Genesis. Do you remember any warnings like this? In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die die it's the same words in the hebrew actually it's emphatic you could translate it more like this whoever touches the mountain shall die die and then be stoned stoned or shot shot god warned adam in the garden in the day you eat of the forbidden tree you will surely die because the wages of sin is death so when a singer sinner tries to bring his sin too close to this god death has to be the penalty This is the warning then. This is why you can't cross the line because holiness is behind the line and you are not fit to come. This is the big problem, isn't it? How can a God like this have any people that are His? Everyone's a sinner. No one is pure and holy like God is. No one measures up. That means anybody who approaches is going to be doomed. You cannot get too close to him with your sin. Now, do not misunderstand me here. The solution is not, well, then we're hopeless. Don't even bother coming to God. That's not it. And nor is the answer, well, you need to sit back behind the line, so to speak, and you need to wait till you're more holy. Wait till you're a better Christian. Wait till you're better, and then you're worthy to come near. That's not it. What's the answer? How can they, how can we possibly approach? There's one answer. We already saw it. You have to come and only come by a mediator. That is, you need to see your sin, you need to see your unworthiness before His holiness, and you need to see, I need a go-between. I need a representative. I need a mediator to bridge the gap between my sin and God's holiness. And to underscore this point as we're in the New Testament, recall the words here of John the Apostle in 1 John chapter 1. If you think it's about being sinless, John tells us this in verse 8 of that chapter. He says, if we say we have no sin, he says, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So the answer isn't pretend you don't have sin anymore, or even dream you don't have sin anymore. That's not the answer. That does nothing to help your standing before God. Actually, it shows you're farther from Him than you wished to know. Well, what do we do? He tells us next in the next verse, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, if we, in that sense, make public before God and before others, if necessary, our sins. If we agree with God, we are sinners, we are guilty. Yes, you should judge me. Then he can show himself to be faithful, John continues, and just or righteous to do what? To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But how can he do that? I'm a great sinner. How can he take care of all of those and make us fit for him? John continues into the second chapter and he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And in a way, I think you could say that about Moses here in Exodus. My friends, I'm writing this to you so you know God is holy and you shouldn't sin against him. But the gospel response also is this. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. You could translate that mediator. We have a lawyer on our behalf with the Father, and his name is Jesus Christ the righteous. Saying, I died for him. He's now holy before you. So in that way, you get, we have a far greater mediator than Moses ever was. Moses could just come back down and bring the Word of God. We have, a mo- we have a mediator who can come and bring us right into the holiness unscathed. He makes us holy as God is and ushers us into the presence of God. But again, don't think you can come close without having your sin dealt with. And that has two aspects to it. You need to first give it to Christ and have Him deal with it. And then you can, by the promise of the gospel, as it talks about in Hebrews 10, come near with bold assurance of faith. Not because you're so holy, but because He was for you. But this also means you cannot come to God clinging to your sin and hiding it. You cannot come to God harboring your sin, cherishing it, and continuing in blatant disobedience, and then think, well, God doesn't think much of it. No. Draw near as a sinner. A confessing, and then we know that way, forgiven sinner. Cleansed by the blood of Christ. Third, How do we move from familiarity to godly fear? Do not overlook His awesome power. Verses 16 to 19. What follows then in these next three verses has to be one of the most terrifying pictures of God in Scripture. And He shows Himself this way on purpose. Namely, to tell you, He's not a God to be trifled with. This is a God whose power needs to make you tremble. Let's look at verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. As I read about thunders and lightnings, I I think about back to my childhood growing up in Kansas City. Kansas City is kind of on the upper tail end of what's known as Tornado Alley. Every summer, we would have huge storms, huge rain, thunderstorms, even tornadoes passing through where we lived. I remember one day in particular, we were at the the baseball game, the Kansas City Royals game, and uh, there was the game was called off because of the storm that was coming through. We were standing on the edge of the stadium, you know, in the security of the stadium, but then the storm just came through with such strong winds, loud booms. I mean, it was majestic. It just mesmerizes you. In the same way like seeing a great sunset or a majestic canyon, and just the vastness of that power represented there, it just draws you in. But not too close, right? It's one thing to be in the safety of the stadium and watch a storm. It's another thing to be out in a field. And then the storm's storm's coming overhead. It's one thing to see a storm out there from afar. It's another thing to be called into the center of it. Look at verse 17. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. God is coming to reintroduce Himself to Israel. And here's what it looks like, verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it, and He did it in fire. And the smoke of of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. God came from heaven down to a mountain. And in the process, they are made to look on, and as they're doing so, every sense of their perception is being overloaded. Their eyes are flashing with the lights before them. There's thick clouds. There's fire everywhere. There's booming thunderclaps piercing their ears along with this rising trumpet sound. The smoke is going into their nose, and their whole body's shaking because the mountain before them is trembling. It feels like creation's falling apart. Get this. It is a storm. It's a power that is unmatched, and it's talking. It has a will, and when it talks, it sounds like a thunderclap. And the reality to confront them is, this is a picture of the power of God, and He's talking to you. Why would God show Himself like this? our God, the God we know, so powerful, so terrifying? Well, you know the answer. It's so you would fear him. You want to call it proper respect, that's fine. If you understand that means you need to be afraid of his power. That you should not be tempted to take a relationship with this God casually, nonchalantly. He showed himself to Israel and now to us as we read it this way to make you tremble. To show you that, look over with me again to Exodus chapter 20. Look at verse 20, or we'll go back to verse 18 again. So the Lord appears like this. We read it in Exodus 20, verse 18. And when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood afar off. And they said to Moses, verse 19, you speak to us, we will listen. But if this God speaks to us, we're going to die. Why did he appear like this? Now we're on to verse 20. Moses said to the people, do not fear. What actually he goes on do not fear for God has come to test you that you would fear him that the fear of him may be before you why so that you may not sin and the people stood afar off and while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was why does he do it like this it's this paradox don't be afraid how are you not supposed to be afraid? Well, it's so you wouldn't fear Him, so you wouldn't sin because you fear Him. What? What's His point? God didn't bring you to this mountain to kill you. I didn't bring you out of Egypt to bring you to the foot of the mountain just to wipe you out here. He had a thousand million other ways to kill you by now. He didn't have to wait till this moment. So what is he doing? He's bringing you here so you'd know, you'd have second thoughts about double-crossing him. So do you have second thoughts about sinning against this holy tornado? As he says there in verse 20, that the fear of him may be before you so you may not sin. Pastor Tim Chester put it together like this. He says, At first sight, it's an odd thing to say. In effect, Moses is saying, don't be afraid, but be afraid, which seems to be expressing as this, don't be afraid, catch this, don't be afraid of feeling fear, because fear is the right response to God. You're doing the right thing, and the fear will keep you loyal to God. The people who should really be afraid are those who feel no fear and take God lightly. He goes on, they should be afraid because they are headed for disaster. Do you fear God yet? Well, I assure you, if you're willing to play and hold on to your sin, you don't. You've lost sight of the God you're messing with. Finally, don't underestimate your waywardness. The last verses of chapter 19. Don't underestimate your sinful bent, your propensity to presume upon God and take His mercy for granted. Because understand, Israel's there, they're trembling at the foot of the mountain at the sight and sound of the shaking God. And in verse 20, God calls Moses up into that fiery cloud, and he goes. And once he's there, the Lord rehearses his warnings to Moses. Look at verse 21 of chapter 19. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, and many of them perish. You know, they go and cross the line. Verse 22, And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. What's the point? It's very dangerous to get close to me. And what's Moses' response back to God? We read it there in verse 23. Moses said to the Lord, well, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. Yeah, that's a good warning, God, but we went down and we, I put boundaries all around the bottom of the mountain. They should know better than coming up here. But God understands our problem, the Israelites' problem, better than Moses does. And he understands our propensity to keep rebelling, our propensity to sin, and God understands the consequences of doing it are far too grave to not have another warning. Verse 24, And the Lord said to him, Yeah, you set the boundaries, you got to go down anyway. And come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through, that is, break across the boundary to try and come up to the Lord. Why? Lest he break out against them. Because here's the thing. I assure you, God understands, if they stick around at the bottom of that mountain, they become familiar with it well, I see the storm there, and yeah, it was scary, but I'm kind of used to the earthquakes by now. Helps us, you know, curdle our milk to make nice butter. We can use this. This is helpful. We become accustomed to the danger. We become used to it, and the threat of it all escapes us. And the point is, that kind of familiarity with God's very dangerous. You are too prone to be wayward, too prone to get comfortable around His holiness, and that's dangerous, because we start thinking, ah, sin doesn't really matter. He still loves me anyway. We sin, He shows grace, and so we sin again and again, banking on more mercy, bent on sinning, finding excuses, quick to indulge, and this is spiritually catastrophic. It is so very dangerous. Remember the story in the Old Testament of the guy named Uzzah? Because he suffered from the same spiritual problem. Familiarity with a holy God. In 2 Samuel chapter 5. King David had just consolidated his rule over Israel. He now ruled over Judah and over the northern kingdom, Ephraim, and he made one kingdom. And as he then took over Jerusalem, he's going to set up his like, capital city in Jerusalem and his throne. And in the process, he wants to have the Ark of the Covenant, the place where God's holiness meets with his people. He wanted to make sure that was too in the capital city. And so they're bringing it into Jerusalem. And it's a great day of celebration. You remember David, he's been on the run from Saul, and now he's the promises of God are coming to pass, the fulfillment of the kingdom's happening, everybody's rejoicing. So they're leading this cart that has the ark, this box on it where God meets his people, and they're leading it into the city. And David's leading the way, and they are singing and praising God until this happens. So here it is, 2 Samuel 6, verse 5 and following. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Just pause. God's getting so much praise right now. He must be so happy in heaven. It goes on in verse 6. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it because the oxen stumbled. I mean, you get this. You ever tried to move an appliance, like on an appliance dolly? You know, a lot of times there's straps on it, and they're there for a reason, Richard. They're there to, like, strap it down so it doesn't become jostled off. Not that I know from experience. But you're moving that dolly, and you hit a bump, and then the dish, the brand new, like, not dishwasher, but the clothes washer shifts on the dolly. And it's brand new. It's immaculate. And it's about to fall off the dolly. And so you reach out and grab it and try and then wheel it in very awkwardly. Again, hypothetical situation. But you don't want it to get scratched. You just paid good money for this. It'll get scratched later when it's already put in the house. But let's at least get it set up once. Well, here it is. The oxen stumbled. The ark shifts. It's going to hit in the mud. And so Uzzah reaches out his hand to try and catch the ark. And here's what happens. 2 Samuel 6, 7. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the Ark of God. One hand, one touch to his holiness, and now he's dead. R.C. Sproul has so well said it. The presumptuous sin of Uzzah was this. He assumed his hands were less polluted than the dirt. He goes on to say, Mud? It is not evil. God's law was not meant to keep the ark pure from the earth, but pure from the dirty touch of a human hand. Uzzah presumed his hands were cleaner than the dirt, and God said, no. God will not be seen as normal, common, profane, regular, just one of the guys a buddy on your shoulder. You know, this God is a consuming, purifying fire. Now, this is heavy. It's supposed to be. Because your sin is a serious thing. And your love for sin, your reflex to sin, your bent towards sin, it makes a relationship with this God rightly a fearful, tenuous thing. And that God, from the Old Testament to New Testament, he hasn't changed. We we know the story of Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit before Peter. He struck them dead. We know the case of the church members in Corinth who took for granted what was happening at the Lord's table. He put them to death too. This is the same God who's going to judge the earth. And yet, because Jesus has come, he hasn't changed, but how we relate to him has. And to show you this, I want to take you to one more passage. Turn to the New Testament and look with me at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. There in your New Testament, of course, the Gospels, you get to Paul's letters, and it's right at the end of Paul's letters. Because the author of Hebrews makes this contrast, which highlights what's changed And what's changed, what we talked about, is because we have a far better mediator than Moses ever was. Because we are not drawn to this merely terrifying mountain. We are drawn into the very presence of God unscathed. And he makes this contrast with Exodus 19 in mind. So here we are, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. He says, For you... Speaking to the Christians, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. And indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses, their mediator, said, I tremble with fear. That's not the mountain you get to come to now. Rather, verse 22 you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And you've come there with innumerable angels in a festal gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, you come to God, even the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Why? Because it was a sacrifice that actually took away your sins. So you get ushered into the throne room of God in heaven with this advocate at your side no longer dealing in pictures, no longer dealing in prophecies and shadows. Your mediator has come, and He has taken your sin, and He has died, and He has won, and He has risen, and He's made all of God's people holy before Him, so holy they can stand before that blazing presence. But brothers and sisters, do not then as much grace as you have been given to be ushered up into this heavenly mountain, Do not belittle His holiness nor belittle the power of His cross by thinking lightly of your sin this week. He had to come from heaven to die for that sin, to bring you on this mountain. He had to take hell on the cross for that sin. He had to give His life for that sin. And not so you can be chummy with God. You know, what's a little sin between He and us. It won't bother Him. No, He came to make you understand and to grow in fear, a joyful fear that hides in Jesus Christ, the kind of fear that falls on its face in grateful praise, wondering, just wondering, God, why am I here? Why am I here, sinner that I am? It's the kind of godly fear that produces a lifetime of obedience. And perhaps the conclusion to that chapter in Hebrews says it best. Therefore, verse 28 of Hebrews 12, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom, this heavenly one, that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship because we love Him. We've seen what He's accomplished in the gospel. But note this acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray to Him, because we can by the work of Jesus. God, apart from the shielding work of Jesus Christ, we are doomed. And yet, You say, because of the work of Christ, that You remember our sins no more, and that we have confidence to draw near to You with full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled by a clean conscience, ultimately sprinkled by the shielding blood of Christ. What is this marvelous thing you have done for us? And May we not trample on it by continuing to indulge in our sin, but may we know you are holy and know you are merciful in Christ, far merciful than we could have imagined, for you have overcome all of our sin. May we then be a faithful people Do this for your glory, we pray. Amen.